0: day on against the grain. Opposition to slavery in the U.S. was spurred, indeed radicalized, by groups called vigilance committees. I'm CS. We'll revisit a conversation with Jesse Olsovsky about runaways, vigilance committees, and the rise of revolutionary abolitionism coming right up this is Against the Grain. On Pacifica Radio, my name is C.S. Song. You may have read a lot about slavery, abolitionism, and the Underground Railroad without coming across mention of vigilance committees. Yet, according to my guest today, vigilance committees played a key role within and in relation to movements to end slavery. In his new book, Jesse Olsovsky asserts that vigilance committees were the militant, highly organized urban wing of the Underground Railroad. He also stresses the importance of the interviews vigilance committee members conducted with fugitive slaves, interviews that acted as a crucial conduit of information, ideas, and strategies for resistance. Jesse Olsovsky is assistant professor of history at Duke Quenshan University in China. His new book is The Most Absolute Abolition, Runaways, Vigilance Committees, and the Rise of Revolutionary Abolitionism, 1835 to 1861. When Jesse and I connected recently, I asked him when and where the first Vigilance Committees were formed.
1: Vigilance Committees, uh, the name actually has origins within the French Revolution. And one of the interesting ironies is that it's Southern slaveholders who adopt the term vigilance committees first. And they're vigilante organizations that basically, uh, particularly after Nat Turner's violent slave insurrection in 1831, there are citizen vigilantes who repress abolitionist literature, hunt down fugitive slaves. Uh, You know, they're basically unorganized posses that come up on a temporary basis. Uh, What's interesting is that abolitionists, probably to cover what they're actually doing, create organizations with the same name, vigilance committees. Uh, The first one is in the mid-1830s in New York City, uh, and then later 1830s in Philadelphia, then Boston by the early 1840s. And then it spreads to many cities, both on the eastern coast of the northern part of the United States, as well as the Midwest, so, uh, for example, there is a particularly strong Detroit Vigilance Committee and a couple of vigilance committees in Canada, the Chatham Vigilance Committee being the most significant and the most militant. Uh, and they operated from the mid-1830s all the way up until the Emancipation Proclamation and the end of slavery when they more or less either shut down or abolitionists move into other activities during the war, whether it's fighting in the Civil War or recruiting troops or going down to the South as teachers of newly liberated uh, enslaved people. Uh, So yeah, I mean, that's that's the scope of the study.
0: Talk about the mission of the early vigilance committee activists. What did they see as? their mission? What did they want to do? And and what was the main focus of their activities?
1: The mission was very simple. Starting in the 1830s, particularly with people like David Walker, the black abolitionist in Boston, and then William Lloyd Garrison, you have a more radical abolitionist movement developing. And through the leadership of William Lloyd Garrison, it emphasized moral suasion. And which means basically trying to convince people that slavery is a moral evil and to end it. And so the emphasis was this mass propaganda campaigns, distributing literature, giving lots and lots of lectures. But at the same time, because slavery is intensifying and expanding in the 1830s, there's increased repression after Nat Turner's rebellion, you have increasing runaways coming from the south to the north. And at first, abolitionists weren't sure, uh, always sure how best to deal with this situation. Obviously, on an individual basis, abolitionists helped them, but there was a big debate. How significant is aiding individual fugitives to the cause of slavery if the emphasis is just on convincing people that slavery is wrong, convincing mainly white people, of course. Uh, And so vigilance committees organized at first separately from the anti-slavery societies in order to deal with the fugitive question uh both in legal terms so sometimes freed people would be illegally kidnapped and so the vigilance committees would hire lawyers to help them out uh in order to free them or more often it was simply illegally assisting fugitives to escape to wherever they wanted to go whether it's canada whether it's you know boston or in many cases, uh, uh, fugitives wanted to go to Haiti or even to England, and they did their best to get them to those places.
0: Which makes us think of the, the Underground Railroad. So should we think of Vigilance Committee activists as primarily uh, conductors along that railroad helping, facilitating the flight of runaways to places like Canada?
1: They, I, I would consider them... One, they're the urban wing of the Underground Railroad, the militant urban wing. But what's so significant about them is that often the Underground Railroad is seen as this spontaneous, largely unorganized endeavor that is you know, related to abolitionism, but in some ways separate and not in meaningful dialogue with the abolitionist movement. But the vigilance committees provide the node of connection because the vigilance activists, Uh, you know, most of them are black abolitionists, but there are also quite a few white abolitionists, a lot of women as well. They provide the kind of connection between the Underground Railroad and the organized above ground anti-slavery movement. And it's because of their prominent position between these two movements that they, they connect them and they make Fugitive Aid or the Underground Railroad central to the abolitionist movement itself. At first it was not as central. But they make it central even before the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act, which, uh, you know, intensifies the underground
0: activities of fugitive aid. You point to uh, at least some people's opinions that abolitionists in the kind of general anti-slavery movement, many of them, didn't really know that much about runaways or fugitives. They they didn't really interact uh, with people fleeing slavery in the South, Um, is that kind of a fair assessment? And that does that point then to the significance of Vigilance Committee activists actually interacting on on a fairly um, close and intimate level conversationally with runaways?
1: There are two sides to that answer. Um, On one, many white abolitionists didn't have a lot of interactions with fugitives and thus there wasn't a meaningful dialogue, but there were other abolitionists, mainly African-American, but also white abolitionists who did help fugitives. But often before the establishment of the Vigilance Committee, some of these, especially if they were followers of William Lloyd Garrison, uh, they often believed that I'm doing, I'm helping a fugitive slave uh, because I feel it's morally right, but I don't think it's the most important element in the fight against slavery. And it's the Vigilance Committee activists who do the most to challenge that view and intensify the kinds of interactions that take place between runaway freedom seekers and abolitionists living in the North, both black and white.
0: What sorts of material and other aid did the Vigilance Committees offer fugitives and runaways who who came across Vigilance Committees in the, the cities in the Northeast and in the North?
1: they engaged in all kinds of aid. I mean, the most obvious is uh, legal assistance, but then hiding someone in one's home, uh, paying transportation costs, and giving directions to the next place that they want to go. Um, And sometimes, as I mentioned before, this was long-distance travel. Uh, There are a couple of instances of enslaved people wanting to go to Haiti because they knew that this is a fully liberated territory. Or they want to go to England. Some were sent to Jamaica and Trinidad as well, which uh, the British Empire had recently ended slavery in 1838. So that was a destination as well for a few. So there was that. Uh, There was plenty of care work involved, often involving women, but sometimes men. So cooking for fugitives, knitting them new clothes, or buying them new clothes. Uh, Often they They would give fugitives a bath or even a haircut, uh, because if you have, you know, a clean, well-dressed individual, one is less likely to suspect them of being a fugitive, so they did that. Uh, Some wanted to learn to read, and so lessons were given, uh, often reading out of Frederick Douglass's autobiography or something else. In other cases, medical services. This is something that the black abolitionist William Still mentioned many, many times, is that In the South, uh, especially the Upper South, health care for enslaved people was of course very poor, but even more curious is that in many cases, uh, slave owners made their slaves pay for their medical services needed, whether they needed to go to a dentist or, you know, maybe they broke a leg or something. Uh, In one case, a fugitive jumped off of a train. Uh, trying to escape and injured his leg very severely, and the Boston Vigilance Committee arranged an amputation because gangrene had set in. In another case, a fugitive named Isaac Williams, he had incurred a bullet wound in his arm fighting slave catchers, and he escaped to Canada via the Philadelphia and Syracuse Vigilance Committees. But then he came back to Syracuse because the head of the Syracuse Vigilance Committee, Jermaine Logan, himself a fugitive and radical minister, uh, offered to help him get, procure a free surgery to basically extract the bullet from his arm uh, so that he could uh, again work. And of course, while, while he was recovering from that surgery, Jermaine Logan made him do a little extra labor as an anti-slavery lecturer before sending him back to Canada. Uh, So they also found work for fugitives, they got them work as anti-slavery lecturers or if they knew somebody who worked on a farm, they would get them that kind of job or often they sent them off as sailors uh, because that's a way to get away from the slave catchers. If you go for a whaling voyage for two years, that's two years where the slave catchers certainly aren't going to get you. So I mean, these are among the numerous things that they did.
0: That's Jesse Olsovsky. He's assistant professor of history at Duke Kunshan University in China. We are talking about his new book, The Most Absolute Abolition Runaways, Vigilance Committees, and the Rise of Revolutionary Abolitionism, 1835 to 1861. You are listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. When fugitives, and again, these are enslaved people who've run away to the north. When they reached vigilance committees, they were, many of them were interviewed by vigilance committee members. What was the motive or purpose behind these interviews? Why did the vigilance committees think it's so important that they talk to and get the accounts of, gather the accounts of runaways?
1: Well, firstly, it was for immensely practical purposes. For example, often families escaped together and got separated. And so if one person came to the vigilance committee saying, my brother, my husband, my sister escaped, did they come this way? They can look into their records and interviews and say, yes, we talked to this person on such and such a date. And we uh, suggested that they go to this place. So we'll send you there as well. And hopefully, you guys can meet up. so that was one reason. Another reason is that sometimes imposters would come to the vigilance committees for aid. These these were people who, in some cases, wanted to spy on the vigilance committees. In other cases, uh, they were destitute people who uh, may not have been fugitives but needed aid of some sort. And sometimes they would they would lie and say that they're fugitives when they're not. And uh, very often, the Vigilance Committees found this out, and they help they helped these people anyway. Uh, so there was those reasons. There was also the need to understand how people were, ex- were escaping the kind of networks that they used, because going into the South was a very dangerous thing if you're an abolitionist. A number of Vigilance Committee activists do it, but the vast majority do not, because you could easily be lynched and then the other the final reason is abolitionists didn't have a lot of concrete knowledge of how the system of slavery worked and this was a this was an important way that they could gather that information through the interviews uh, in some cases white abolitionists conduct these interviews, but in most cases it's black abolitionists there's a in many cases, a certain level of trust between fugitives and their interviewers that develop. Uh, it's not always instantaneous. Both sides are suspicious of each other, uh, particularly the fugitives who understand that anyone might be uh, pretending to be an abolitionist in order to send them to slave catchers. So, But an intimacy develops, and an exchange of thought develops, and uh, so the Vigilance activists are able to record a great deal of information about what enslaved people are thinking about slavery, what their thoughts are on the political economy of slavery, what their analysis is of it, what their analysis is of of how slavery works, the way that it is repressive towards women, the ways that it uses wages, and the ways enslaved people are forced to work in factories. All of these things, uh, as well as, you know, religious and cultural life of slaves and the ways that the master class tries to repress this, all of this information comes out in the interviews. And abolitionists and the vigilance committees write these things down often in a remarkable amount of detail. And almost 2,000 such interviews exist, some of them with a little bit of information, others with a lot of information.
0: Are you in the process of describing these interviews of fugitives conducted by vigilance committee members? Are you emphasizing in some sense the role runaways played in sharing and producing information and knowledge?
1: Absolutely. The core of my argument, I mean, there are a number of key arguments, but the core of it is that the Underground Railroad is intimately connected to the abolitionist movement, and more importantly, the Underground Railroad is a movement of ideas. And in a meaningful sense, it starts with the interviews. It starts when fugitives and abolitionists start talking to each other, sometimes for the first time. Uh, And that is what initiates the dynamic that brings ever more... Formerly enslaved people and self liberated people into the abolitionist movement. Uh, you know, for example, many of the slave narrative writers, the great ones that we know Harriet Jacobs, Frederick Douglass, William Wells Brown, Henry Box Brown, uh, and the list can go on and on, either were involved in vigilance committees or had been assisted by them. And in many cases, the first time that these people self-liberated people tell their story narrate their life's experience and denounce slavery is when they are asked to discuss their experiences with vigilance committee members and then very often they start discussing again as lecturers if they get involved in the abolitionist movement they uh, practice and hone their storytelling and then finally they write slave narratives uh this is also the case for frederick Douglass, the you know one of the more famous Fugitive abolitionist who was helped by vigilance committees. He was helped by the New York Vigilance Committee
0: What did the Vigilance Committee members learn from the fugitives? about the Connection between the flight of enslaved people in the south in the 1830s to 1860s and the level of labor exploitation in the south
1: Well, they I mean they they learned a great deal part of it is because many of the enslaved people who are able to escape are closer to the North. So particularly in places like Maryland, Virginia, even down into North Carolina. And so often their knowledge reflects in great detail the specific labor conditions there. Uh, So enslaved people, fugitives, talk about they talk about factory labor, particularly tobacco factories. They talk about uh, different forms of hiring out.
0: And by hiring out, you mean what? The hiring out by the slaveholder of the enslaved person to to another employer.
1: Yes, uh, hiring hiring out here means is that a slave owner hires a slave to a, another employer, so it could be a factory owner, it could be someone working on the wharves or fishermen, and so they would earn wages, and they would have to pay a certain amount of their wages that they earn to their master, and they keep, they're allowed to keep a little bit of their wages. Often it's to pay for their medical care. Uh, If they have children, it's to pay for their children, so even if the, the slave owner Uh, technically owns these children. He doesn't actually have to pay for their upkeep. The uh, parent has to, and also housing, things like that. And sometimes even despite this, enslaved people are able to save up enough money to buy their freedom. And the fugitives that come to the vigilance committees do talk a lot about that. Uh, Many of them escape because they had saved up money to pay for their freedom they pay their masters and then the masters decide uh, well we're not going to we're not going to acknowledge our obligation to give you your freedom and so they have to escape
0: his name is Jesse Olsovsky. he teaches history at Duke Kunshan University in China his new book out from LSU Press is The Most Absolute Abolition Runaways, Vigilance Committees, and the Rise of Revolutionary Abolitionism, 1835-1861. to This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. And, Jesse, you write that the hiring out of enslaved people had an effect on the enslaved person's inclination and ability to escape to the North, but it also had an impact on the literal body of laborers, the level of exploitation uh, that might be exercised by, let's say, an urban factory owner against the enslaved person who was hired out by their uh, slave master.
1: Yeah, and so what the interviews suggest is the level of exploitation is increasing. Enslaved people are being worked harder to produce more but at the same time another facet that I forgot to mention is the intensification of the internal slave trade which is going on at the same time and this is another part of the experience that enslaved people who free themselves uh, bring to the vigilance committees is they talk at length about this they talk about uh, Families being separated, they often escape after learning that they will, they themselves will be sold to the Deep South, to the cotton kingdom, which is driving the global capitalist economy at this time. Uh, and another thing in terms of exploitation that's very significant is that about 25% of runaways who come to the Vigilance Committee are women. And they are very vigorous in their discussion of the many kinds of exploitation that they endure and face. This includes childbearing, which they see as a way of reproducing commodities for the slave power, you know, commodities as new human beings. They talk about doing house labor and farm labor, as well as hiring out. Uh, So they do the productive labor, but also the reproductive and social reproductive labor of the plantation system. Uh, And by social reproduction here, I mean the cooking, cleaning, reproducing the, the necessities of life for the enslaved population and for the master class, you know, cooking, cleaning, feeding them as well.
0: Remind us what Nat Turner's rebellion in 1831 was about and what impact it had on Southern elites and their response to enslaved populations that they thought might be uh, inspired in some way by what Nat Turner had done.
1: Nat Turner was, as many of you might know, is an enslaved Virginian who had a, was a kind of apocalyptic Christian visionary who organized a slave revolt in 1831, uh, killed a number of white people and basically caused a panic within the state of Virginia. There is, was even some discussions which were quickly sidelined of ameliorating slavery or even ending it Uh, But that was quickly repressed and sidelined. And what happens is a very vicious reign of terror within Virginia but also neighboring states and uh, places in North Carolina and Maryland. Repression of religious, independent black religious meetings, arbitrary imprisonment and beatings and even killings of people. And what's interesting is that fugitives who go to the vigilance committees, they talk quite a bit about this wave of repression. Some of them had experienced it as children, some of them had immediately experienced it, but it was a kind of living memory, this this repression. And after that, a real serious police state was implemented in the South, which also encouraged people to escape more. There was, things were getting more repressive. And this does coincide with the fact that Uh, the cotton economy of the Deep South is intensifying, it's expanding westward. uh, And so the mix between that intensification of slavery plus the repression after Turner's revolt does encourage many, many enslaved people to try to do whatever they can to get out of the South. And wherever freedom or something close to freedom might be, that's where they go.
0: You write that uh, fugitives, again, these are runaway enslaved people, And these vigilance committees spearheaded the abolitionist turn to violent means in the mid 19th century. So, here are we talking about how uh, many fugitives looked to people like Matt Turner and understood or tried to make their vigilance committee interlocutors understand that uh, violence was an important ingredient in the struggle against slavery?
1: Yes, it's actually a rather complicated story because the abolitionist movement, like many movements, you know, from the civil rights movement to India's independence movement, the question of violence versus nonviolence was a major one. And what's curious is that the vigilance committees started out as branches of Garrisonian abolitionism, which was committed to pacifism and nonviolence. And gradually that commitment to nonviolence violence eroded uh, or became, or the Garrisonian abolitionists became more pragmatic about it. Even Garrison himself, who's always seen as the impractical Prince of Peace, uh, even advocates slave insurrection as necessary to end slavery by the 18, he's saying this even as early as the 1840s, but more often in the 1850s. Um, but the fugitives and the Vigilance Committee members, they add two things to this discussion. One, they do realize that violence, especially in self-defense, is morally is something that is morally necessary. You know, if a slave catcher is trying to capture somebody, an enslaved person, or someone who is assisting them has the right to attack that slave catcher, or defend the, the, the enslaved person, or the enslaved person defend themselves, from the pursuer Uh, but other forms of violence develop as well uh prison breaks happen in many cases but just as importantly and this gets less emphasized is that what comes out of the vigilance committees is also a thinking about what is what is revolution or what is revolutionary abolitionism what does it mean to radically transform society and does violence play a role in that so a lot of the vigilance activists are coming up with theories of how a revolutionary transformation could come about. Some of them keep to nonviolent uh, dreams of of anti-slavery revolution, but others are looking and reading in history. They read the history of the Haitian Revolution. Uh, they read the history of American independence, and often find the American so-called revolution very limited for their purposes. Uh, They're very interested in the Maroons of Jamaica and Suriname, for example, and read into that history. Uh, And so what comes out of the practical acts of violence that are necessary to the daily functions of vigilance committees, or not daily, but to relatively regular functions, uh, leads into all different kinds of revolutionary speculation. Uh, And this is happening at a time that you have the 1848 revolutions, you have the Taiping Rebellion, which some Vigilance Committee activists paid attention to and sympathized with, the 1857 revolt in India against colonial rule. Uh, And so violence was, you know, part of their imagination by this time because they were living in a very, very revolutionary age. And the final thing that I would want to say about that is at the same time Abolitionists and fugitives, they have no fetish for the gun. They understand that the fetishization of the right to bear arms is an idea of the master class. Uh, so they do not—they fe- do not fetishize it. The the slogan of the abolitionist movement, which is repeated by many vigilance committee members, is "peaceably if we can, forcefully if we must." And I think they adhere to that i that idea very strictly. In some cases, I know of. Uh, dozens of instances of runaways coming to the vigilance committees, I believe about 80 instances of runaways coming to the vigilance committees armed or having used violence to escape their pursuers in the south, and in a few instances, the, the runaways hand over their weapons, they say, I've, you know, I've freed myself, I don't need this anymore. Uh, so the weapon, the gun, is a practical tool, it's not a principle. Uh, it's not some right that needs to be enshrined in any constitution. It's just something that is practical and necessary in certain moments.
0: His name is Jesse Olsavsky, spelled O-L-S-A-V-S-K-Y. He's assistant professor of history at Duke Quinshan University in China. He's co-director of the Freedom Lab an interdisciplinary faculty-student research center devoted to the study of unfreedom and liberation in the modern world. And we are discussing Jesse's new book, The Most Absolute Abolition, Runaways, Vigilance Committees, and the Rise of Revolutionary Abolitionism, 1835-1861. We've put a link on againstthegrain.org to Jesse's faculty page, as well as to his new book, The Most Absolute Abolition. I'm C.S., and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. And just to remind listeners who've just joined us, vigilance committees, how many of them approximately were there in the the, uh, northern U.S.? Uh, Generally, where were the biggest ones? And again, how how would you define uh, their role in the uh, abolitionist movement?
1: There were around a dozen or more. Some of them were temporary. Uh... But the more longstanding vigilance committees that operated on a regular basis for many years, in some cases as long as two decades, were based in Boston, New York, Philadelphia, upstate New York, such as in Syracuse and Albany. Detroit had on and off a very well-organized vigilance committee also. And the work of these committees was basically to... uh, Defend black communities from police and slave catchers, and to help uh, self liberated people who had run away from the South escape the prison house of slavery. Uh, and they also served as a connecting point between the Underground Railroad, the underground wing of abolitionism, and the above ground public abolitionist movement you know, the lecturers, the songwriters, the newspaper editors, the public agitators, these uh, groups of people.
0: John Brown makes an appearance in your book, again, the book by my guest Jesse Olsovsky called The Most Absolute Abolition. And I think this is in the context of understanding what the vigilance committees were doing uh, with fugitives, with runaways as a, a kind of a revolutionary turn in the abolitionist movement. Um, remind us what uh, John Brown did to try to incite a slave insurrection and and tell us what role Vigilance Committees played in the planning and financing of Brown's initiative.
1: So as many may know, in 1859, John Brown, with a number of black and white collaborators, traveled to Harpers Ferry and seized the Federal Armory at Harpers Ferry with the idea of arming enslaved people to launch an insurrection, uh, but also they wanted to facilitate the, the mass exodus of people who were not able to fight out of the South via the Underground Railroad. Uh, obviously, this plan did not work. Uh, enslaved people realized that as a, min- as a minority within the South, white people are still the majority. Slave insurrection is something that is largely impossible uh, because the, you had the white majority as well as federal power on the side of slaveholders. So the rebellion failed and John Brown becomes one of the great martyrs of the abolitionist cause. The insurrection does spur a huge amount of fear and anxiety in the South, and it is one of the factors that leads to Southern secession in the 1861 in the Civil War. It's one of the factors, not the only. You know, but often Brown is treated as this very secretive individual. And one thing that I point out vigorously in my book is the fact that a lot of the knowledge, ideas, personnel, tactics that he eventually uses in the planning and implementation of his raid come through the networks and people of the vigilance committees. Uh, So for example, in 1850, John Brown himself was a member and leader of an all-black vigilance committee in Springfield, Massachusetts. Uh, He helps runaways along the Underground Railroad, and he builds his connections Uh, He's very picky about who he chooses to associate with. So he doesn't associate with all abolitionists, the people he's close to, like Frederick Douglass, his secret six of uh, co-conspirators, most of them, Lewis Hayden, the black abolitionist and fugitive from Boston. Most of these people are active in the vigilance networks. And so he goes to them for aid as well as advice uh, about guerrilla warfare tactics. They probably discussed uh, about marinaj, because both John Brown and Thomas Higginson were interested in this subject. One of his most important meetings is before his raid, he goes to Philadelphia uh, and talks with vigilance committees there about the networks that they use to assist enslaved people to get out of the South, the different kinds of safe houses they use, the places they go to, different contacts uh, and routes that they should be taking. And that proved to be very elemental knowledge for him. Uh, and thus, if you really look at the history of John Brown and his raid and how it develops, the Vigilance Committee activists play a very central role.
0: You mentioned marronage, and that refers to desertion of enslaved people from their holders in the South. Uh, They remained in the South. They set up their own autonomous communities, maroon communities. And and there is that phenomenon. There are sort of temporary runaways. There are other deserters who remain in the South. How do you see those uh, movements, those actions, those activities in relation to the Underground Railroad?
1: Uh, In some ways, it's imaginatively connected. In other ways, it's direct and practical. So on the imaginative side is that vigilance activists were really reading and studying the history of mass marinage in places like Suriname, Jamaica in the West Indies, as well as Brazil, where you had much larger scale maroon communities, which were able to subsist and survive and even come to accommodations with colonial governments to maintain their independence. Now, marronage on that scale never existed in the territorial United States. There were smaller maroon communities within the Great Dismal Swamp, within, which is mainly in Virginia. The Vigilance Committees took imaginative inspiration from the larger scale uh, marronage and sometimes hoped to replicate it. Uh, in some ways, John Brown's plan uh, is reminiscent of the mass maroon communities that existed in jamaica for example uh so but on the practical side many self-liberated people who had escaped they escaped from the dismal swamp so they had to been maroons themselves and they discussed this marinage with the vigilance committee members and it became an object of fascination to the vigilance committee members they wrote Uh, Fugitives wrote about the Dismal Swamp, but so did abolitionists. In fact, Harriet Beecher Stowe, whose, you know, first novel is the very conservative Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, writes a second novel during the mid-1850s after many discussions with Boston Vigilance Committee members and some fugitive slaves. Uh, She writes a novel called Dread, which is about a revolutionary maroon in the Dismal Swamp, and it's a, a book very different in tone than uh, her first novel, which vigilance committee members in fact happened to criticize. They liked the second novel.
0: So many people think of the, the underground railroad as, you know, this, this incredibly important avenue of escape, such that enslaved people could move to the north and escape their bonds and, and find places of freedom, in, including Canada, although that's certainly not where all fugitives and runaways ended up what role do you see the underground railroad playing in setting the stage for the civil war and and perhaps even being a part being a causal factor of it
1: yeah a number a number of scholars not just myself have have shown pretty definitively that the underground railroad was a major factor in causing the civil war you know one of the main causes of the civil war is the 1850 fugitive slave act and the compromises that led to its passage because it basically made all you know all white northerners as potential policers of fugitive slaves and it seemed as a major intrusion of southern federal power into their daily lives which they didn't like even if they were not sympathetic with abolitionists and of course the cause of this was that so many people were before 1850, were escaping to the north uh, and being assisted by, especially by, vigilance committees. So a lot, you know, historians have shown the politics behind the fugitive slave law and the ways that that debates over that were a major cause of rift between the north and south, breaking apart the kinds of compromises that they had arranged with each other uh, prior to the 1850s. But you know, on the other hand, uh, what is happening, and what I study more is that the vigilance committees, and of course the uh, especially after the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law, they are increasing and intensifying their militancy. They're becoming uh, more well known in the eyes of northerners and southerners, more notorious. They're engaging in some of the major slave rescues of the 1850s. For example, uh, the failed Anthony Burns case in 1854, in which they tried to rescue Anthony Burns from prison and the you know federal troops had to enter the city of Boston in order to take Anthony Burns down back south into slavery, which caused a huge uproar in the north, particularly in Boston. Uh, and of course, as I mentioned before, the planning and implementation of John Brown's uh, own attempts at a slave insurrection were one of those events that really sealed the deal for the South. They didn't want to stay in too much longer and of course by the time Abraham Lincoln is elected they are not willing to stay in in the Union anymore because they see it as a potential threat to their institution, their
0: economic institution, namely slavery. Jesse Olsowski is my guest. He teaches history at Duke Kunshan University in China. His book is The Most Absolute Abolition, Runaways, Vigilance Committees, and the Rise of Revolutionary Abolitionism, 1835 to 1861. And the title of your book connects, explicitly connects vigilance committees with revolutionary abolitionism. You've talked about sort of the, the revolutionary direction in which the vigilance committees, and the runaways and fugitives they talked with uh, turned or pivoted the abolitionist movement or the anti-slavery movement in general. Are you arguing then that the anti-slavery movement would have been less revolutionary, less militant, if the vigilance committees and their work had not existed?
1: Most certainly, uh, and there are a number of reasons for this, Uh, On one hand, the vigilance committees were the most responsible for bringing self-liberated people into the movement uh, in many different facets as uh, anti-slavery singers, as autobiographers, as people who worked in anti-slavery societies, as newspaper editors. Uh, The vigilance committees did much of that work. That's one thing, and that brought a new kind of militancy to the movement, which is very different from, for example, the British abolitionist movement, which always, uh, you know, always had a white middle-class leadership, uh, only later started to develop a working-class element to it as well. You know, another factor is that the work that the vigilance committees did attracted a whole array of radicals and reformers and ordinary people that were much more diverse than the membership of many of the anti-slavery societies, which were often middle class, both black middle class and white middle class. The vigilance committees attracted black dock workers, for example, who were essential to helping fugitives escape by sea. I uh, would probably 25% or more uh, self liberated people escaped by hiding on boats that were bo- moving between Boston and the South or Philadelphia, or New York. Uh, women were heavily involved in the vigilance committee movement uh you know doing care work in houses you know feeding caring for clothing fugitives but then uh many kinds of radicals seeking adventure intellectuals in the transcendentalist movement are involved in the vigilance committees many fugitives themselves who had been helped by them who feel that they need to help others are part of the vigilance committees Uh, but you also have spiritualists, anarchists, feminists of various kinds, uh, and abolitionists of all stripes. You know, there was like most social movements, there was a lot of sectarianism in the abolitionist movement, people in different camps debating each other over this or that line on this question, et cetera, et cetera. But within the vigilance committees, those different factions worked together because they all of the people in the vigilance committees were committed to assisting uh, and defending fugitives uh, and most especially if they were fugitives themselves.
0: Jesse, you note throughout your book and particularly in chapter four, that vigilance committee activists criticized and sometimes actively resisted all forms of confinement and incarceration. In what ways and for what reasons did they do this?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, this and arguments like that are very central to the book, because very often when people study the Underground Railroad, they don't treat it as a movement of ideas. Uh, It's only a movement of moving people from here to there. Um, But what is important, particularly about the vigilance committees, is that all kinds of people come into interaction and dialogue for the first time through their work in the Underground Railroad. And what comes out of this is radical ideas of various kinds critiques of Christianity, you know, ideas about revolution. uh, New forms of music, literature, writing, including, of course, the slave narratives, which are probably uh, one of America's most important contributions to world literature. Uh, But also, I found out researching this that prison abolitionists come out of this dialogue and what I mean by that is that when self-liberated people come to the vigilance committees and they describe their experiences in the interviews, they very often describe enslavement as the prison house. Uh, and the, you know, this is a biblical derivation, the, the prison house of Egyptian bondage in which the Israelites had fled. Uh, and so they describe, they describe slavery as a kind of prison, as a kind of confinement. Uh, and they go into great detail discussing, you know, the forms of imprisonment that go on in the south. Uh, you know, jails used to uh, incarcerate people to be sold south. You know, the different kinds of punishment go on on the plantation. Uh, you know, some some plantations had prisons themselves on the plantation. And abolitionists adopted this language, and if you read uh, abolitionist newspapers or other sources, they describe sla- they call slavery the prison house. It was the most important euphemism for slavery. Uh, but at the same time, a number of vigilance committee members, they started to turn this rhetoric and this critical rhetoric towards prisons and incarceration against prisons themselves, not just slavery or prisons in the South, but also against prisons anywhere you know, because uh, people who helped fugitives were often sent into prison. Uh, Vigilance committees had to raise funds to bail numerous people out of jail who had helped fugitive slaves. Of course, they had to rescue, on a couple of instances, uh, self-liberated people from prison. And in a couple of instances, for example, the white abolitionist, Charles Torrey, who was imprisoned for helping fugitives in the 1840s, he actually started engaging in discussions and interviews with incarcerated people that he was with, many of them themselves fugitive slaves. And he, de- he decided he was going to write a book denouncing the entire penitentiary complex within the United States. Uh, unfortunately, he def- died of tuberculosis before he could complete this grand project. Uh, but other abolitionists took up these ideas. John Murray Spear, another Uh, vigilance activists advocated for the abolition of patriarchy, of private property, of slavery of every sort, but he also advocated the abolition of prisons and another abolitionist uh, who was involved in the Boston Vigilance Committee even drew up a plan for complete prison and police abolition and he acknowledged his work with the Vigilance Committee as you know one of the inspirations for it because earlier he had written uh, manuals for how Boston Vigilance Committee members should track down and fight slave catchers. And after that, he writes his Prison and Police Abolition book a, a few years later. And so, you know, what I'm arguing is that there was a relationship between abolition and prison abolition, uh, a relationship that's often forgotten but increasingly very, very significant today. As the prison has, in some ways, replaced uh, slavery as the you know mass institution of racialization and exploitation uh, that exists within the United States.
0: Jesse Olsowski, he teaches history at Duke Kunshan University in China. We've been talking about his new book, *The Most Absolute Abolition*. Runaways, Vigilance Committees, and the Rise of Revolutionary Abolitionism, 1835-1861. to 1861. It's published by LSU Press. Uh, Jesse, thank you so much for your work, for writing this book, and for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for your time. And that program first aired last November 8th. And this is C.S. suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio resources and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.